For many of you, you'll recognize it. You can join me. For others, it may be new. And you'll learn an important song that we sing every Adar. Wish everyone a very simchadik, a very joyful Adar, and Purim is a Purim is a little different this year. So actually, that's a good segue into our poll. Let's hear our let's see our poll this morning, which is right on topic of Purim. Purim coming up. Can't believe it's next week. Here comes your poll options. First, on Purim this year, I most look forward to wearing a costume, making shalach manot to drop off to others. Those are gifts for the poor. Food, not actually not for the poor. That that's matanot mavionim. Shalach manot is uh, gifts of food to friends. To neighbors, hearing, reading the Megillah in person or virtually. Option four, I'm not looking forward to Purim because I never do. Option five, I'm not looking forward to Purim because the pandemic has killed it for me. Okay, those are your five options. As always, maybe you want to select more than one, but choose the one that works for you best this year. Give you a few seconds here before we uh, see some results. Okay, let's see the results. Hmm, wow, wearing a costume, nobody. Making Shalach Manot, 50%. Megillah, 38%. People who hate Purim, we have no Purim haters here. Okay, we can go on. If we had some Purim haters, I, we'd have to stop the class. Um, and That's because Stan's not here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that makes sense. Stan would not be a Purim guy. Stan is a Pesach guy. Stan is a Pesach guy, a Shavuot guy. Yeah, I understand. I understand why somebody wouldn't love Purim. Um, or the pandemic has killed it. I understand that too, because Purim is about community. And without community, it makes things, everything so much harder. God willing, next Purim will be uh, uh, in Jerusalem, or at least not in the pandemic. <laughs> uh, in any case, Shalach Manot was also my bet, my, my, my vote. And you know, we don't have to contrast ourselves to American culture, but I do love this little ding on Halloween. I'm not an anti-Halloween guy, you know, but a little ding on Halloween. Halloween, you ask people for food, right? Um, and here, it's the opposite of Halloween. We go out and we deliver food rather than go to people's doors and ask nothing wrong with asking for food but something really nice to shalach manot of, of arriving and um and and offering these types of things as you know that the tradition is to give uh two foods um that is to say food of two different species of species i don't know if that's the right word but but we, we say that min in hebrew min so like one grain and one fruit or one um um, shahakol, it's based on the bracha. So one shahakol, which would be like a jelly bean, and one mizono would be like a cookie. So that's the idea, is to have two different species in there. And if you're, if you're part of those synagogues that put a whole basket together for the community, that's a real big undertaking. Thank those people who run that committee. Cheryl, I wouldn't be surprised if you've run the Shalach Manot committee. <laughs> that's something Cheryl will do. Um, so, okay, very good. So that's Purim next week. I hope it's... Uh, joyful for everyone. And I hope we can talk about Purim at the end of this session a little bit. We can talk about it next week too, since next week is the Purim week, but there's really a lot to discuss about Purim. Okay, but this is a very interesting one. This is a very interesting one that we have today of Mochik, Mochik. Okay, our previous Malacha looked at the ethical dimensions of writing. We talked about writing two, two or more letters that was called Kotev. The Malacha this week we want to focus on is Mochik, about the erasure the erasure of two letters to write more. But here's the, here's the crucial point. Once again, malachot are about constructive acts. Erasure is a destructive act. And so the erasing has to do with the uh, attempt to write more. 
unless the Talmud indicates that this malacha applies to erasing only one letter if there was space with erasing that one for two letters to be drawn in its place. Because the idea, once again, is to be drawn. Just like digging a hole is about planting, it's not about the digging itself. So too, the erasing is about writing. So let's step back for a moment. What does it mean to erase? Does it mean the complete denial of something that previously existed? Sometimes our memories can be erased for better or worse. Consider Rav's suggestion in connection with Yetziat Mitzrayim, in connection with the exodus from Egypt. He writes, God wanted the Israelites to leave with a sense that some of the debt had been settled so that part of the stigma of slavery would be erased and they could leave without a deep sense of hatred and rage. See, one of the things that emerges from injustice is that you never kind of move on, right? And when there's some degree of justice, some parts of the pain or the stigma can be erased. Of course, not always. People are different. Communities are different. But part of what justice does, it is enables to er the erasure of stigma, Rav Cook is saying. And th the Jewish people, the Israelites, leaving Egypt, entering the promised land, needing to build a society, needing to be an orlegoyim, a light to the nations, cannot be a people filled with hate and rage. And so the need to, the, the need to address the debt, the reparations, if you will, um, needs to be enacted not only for justice, but for the erasure, which leads to health, which leads to the removal of hatred and rage to some degree. So to transcend toxic emotions, we sometimes need to erase the full emotional impact of a past hurt. We acknowledge that evil or simply misdirection is real in the world and we wish and work to erase it from the earth. In, in Psalm 34, verses 16 to 17, we read, the eyes of God are on the righteous. God's, eye, God's ears are attentive to their cry. The face of God is set against evildoers to erase their names from the earth. But erasing is not only something, as we see, that we do to ourselves and to our memories. Others can erase others, sometimes even violently. Consider this rabbinic teaching from the Tosefta of Yevamot. Rabbi Akiva says, one who sheds blood erases the likeness, as it says, one who sheds human blood by humans, their blood shall be shed for in the image of God, humans, uh, in the image of God, God created humans. That's from Genesis 9, 6, of course. Now here's where the debate enters in. Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah says, anyone who does not procreate erases the likeness, as it says, for in the image of God, God made humankind. And it is written, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, Peru Urvu. Ben Azai says, anyone who does not procreate is a shedder of blood and erases the likeness, as it says, for in the image of God, God made humans, as it is written, as for you, be fruitful and multiply. So this is interesting. Their debate is not an obvious debate because they're just merely taking a different interpretation. But here we see this idea of murder, Rabbi Akiva says, is an attack on God. Rabbi Elzer ben Azariah says, if you don't bring new life into the world, to some degree, yes, female infertility is the uh, screaming out here of, of an obvious um, challenge here, um, and obviously is not what they're talking about, although it doesn't make it any less painful to read texts like this if someone has struggled with infertility. Um, and so um, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azaria says, one who actively chooses, i.e., not that they can't, but actively can and chooses not to procreate erases divinity from the world because just as God creates human beings, we emulate God by creating human beings. Um, so, so Rabbi Elisa ben Azari says it's an erasing. Ben Azai says, no, not exactly an erasing of divinity. It's actually more like murder. It's actually more like killing, um, which, is, uh, which is quite intense.
Um, and so that's an interesting machloket, an interesting debate around how they think of, in, again, if somebody were dealing with infertility, they would call this a troubling or uh, disturbing text. But um, I think here they're dealing with the type of person who's, who says, you know what, eat, drink, and be merry. Having a kid sounds really hard and not fun. Like, I'd rather just be self-indulgent um, in my own life. We, I, I, not many of us, but, but some of us have met people like this, uh, as have I, um, who merely say, that doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound interesting. I would rather do things more fun and interesting. And, and into such a case, it would be described as uh, a shedding of divine blood. This is also like the, the case of suicide, which we understand to be tragic and about mental illness. And yet there is kind of the rare case um, where um, it would actually be considered an affront to God rather than merely a case of mental illness. Uh, but again, we, 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 we would never uh, describe that ourselves. Or, um, that would be uh, only for God to, 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 to assign. Okay, let's go to the Maharal. The Maharal writes about how this, ty this type of erasing applies to the process of shaming as well. We've talked a lot in our, in our learning together about shaming. So here's, here's the Maharal. But what the Talmud said, whoever shames their fellow, it is as if they have shed blood. This is something inner because one who shames their friend, it is that they extinguish the light of the face, which is the human being, as if they were extinguishing a candle and this is called shedding the blood of a person. For this tselem, this image, has a most wonderful thing. And that is that it is from the form of the human being. And therefore, one whoever shames or whitens, that's an interesting read on whitens, because we think of shaming as making a person's face red. And we always wonder why the Talmud talks about whitening a face. But here they're talking about extinguishing the flame, the light of the flame. And it almost like goes dark. It, it, it goes from red to white and nullifies the tselem of the face of their friend until they whiten it and extinguish its light. This is called shedding of blood. For shedding of blood is nothing but the nullification of the person and one who whitens the face of the other. They erase that through which the person is recognized. Once again, they've erased the tselem elokim. And this is the erasure of the person, not only erasure of the divinity of the person, but the erasure of the person themselves. Because the tselem is the person. It is the person. And when God came to make Adam, he, she said, let us make Adam in our image, but Salmenu, and in our likeness, Bedmutenu. God did not say, let us make Adam possessing reason and intellect, but in our image and likeness. Thus it is proven that the essence of the person is in their, in their Tselem Elohim. So that's very interesting. That Maharal is very rich. And part of it is that what makes us human, what is constitutive, this is, I, I believe, there's so many good arguments about what distinguishes humans from angels and what distinguishes humans from animals. But I think that the most compelling case is that we are created with Tselem Elohim, that we are created in the image of God. Then, of course, we're left with the question, well, what is that image? And so the Maharal says, when you shame someone, you erase their tzalim alakim, you erase their, their, their humanity, not only their divinity. So through shame, one can feel marginalized, which is a social form of erasure. And so indeed, the image of God ethically takes precedence over the name of God. One of the 613 mitzvot is the prohibition not to erase holy writings or written names of God, Right. This is found in, in Mitzvah 437 in the Sefer Achinuch. The Gemara lists several divine names that we are forbidden to erase. It then lists several other names, such as Hanun and Rachum, which although they are often used in reference to God, do not contain any particular holiness, and they, they may be erased. So once again, really important, don't erase the name of God. However, even given this importance of the unerasable names of divinity, the Rambam writes, this is found in the Mishnah Torah, Hilcho Megillat Esther V'Chanukah, so relevant to our time of year. If such a poor person has to choose between oil between oil or for both a house lamp on Shabbat and a Hanukkah lamp or oil 
for a house lamp on Shabbat and wine for the sanctification, for Kiddush, the house lamp should have priority for the sake of peace in the household, seeing that even a divine name might be erased to make peace before husband and wife. Great indeed is peace in, in as much as the purpose for which the whole of the Torah was given to bring peace upon the world. As it is said, its ways are ways of pleasantness and its paths are peace. Um, as we sing, putting the Torah away. <laughs> um, and so we see here in the Rambam and many other sources that we can erase the divine name in order to um, to bring peace. Now, one of our troubling texts from the Torah, which also fits into this um, positive uh, interpretation, would be the Sota. Of course, the Sota case is, is very uh, complex and troubling. But what is really happening there, according to the rabbis, is we want this woman who is, a, who is, who is uh, accused of being an adulteress to be reunited with her husband. And the only way to do that is to erase the name of God. And thus, once again, shows peace in the home outweighs uh, the, the, uh, the sanctification of the divine name. Okay? We feel guilt when we go through a spiritual evolution as if we are erasing a part of our past projection of God. Think about this. We can feel like we have betrayed God in some way when we spiritually evolve. But this can be a mistake because our sense of guilt might form a barrier to religious and spiritual growth. In some sense, we need to, quote-unquote, erase God from our hearts to give birth to a new consciousness of divinity. What would it mean for Torah to be erased? In the Jewish tradition, we don't erase ideas we disagree with. Rather, we debate them. We record them. <coughs> Excuse me. We learn them and sometimes even denounce them. Torah can only be erased in death. This is to express the Talmudic view that one is no longer obligated in mitzvot at death. Okay, here comes a cool theological passage. Um, next slide. Oh, oh, this didn't make it in there. Oh, okay. So it doesn't make sense for me to read it. It's a little bit no, let me just read it. I'm sorry, it's not up on the slide for some reason. The sages taught in a Brita with regard to a garment in which diverse kinds, a prohibited mixture, a prohibited mixture of wool and linen was lost. It is a wool garment into which a linen thread was sewn or vice versa, and it is not known where on the garment the thread is located. One may not sell this garment to a Gentile, and one may not even fashion it into a saddle cloth for a donkey. Because this is is um, um, is called shotness. Shotness. This is prohibited lest one remove a piece of the garment and sew it into into one's own clothing. But one may fashion it into a shroud for a corpse. Oh, this is very interesting. What do you mean? If I can't benefit in any way from the shotness, the wool and linen tied together, why can I make this a shroud for a corpse? As there is no concern that one might remove it from the dead. Rav Yosef said. That is to say that the meat's vote will be nullified in the future. Ah, oh, this is very radical. Rav Yosef says the meat's vote will be nullified in the future. If, there were no, if this were not the case, then when the dead are resurrected, they will be deriving benefit from the garment of diverse kinds in which they were buried. buried. Abaye said to Rav Yosef, and some say that Rav Dimi said to Rav Yosef, but didn't Rabbi Mani say, say that Rav Yanai said? I love how they quote each other. They taught that it is permitted to place a corpse in a shroud of diverse kinds only in order to eulogize them. But it, it is prohibited to bury him in a shroud of diverse kinds. Rav Yosef said to him, wasn't it stated with regard to that matter that Rabbi Yochanan says it, it is even permitted to bury him in a shroud of diverse kinds? And Rabbi Yochanan conforms to his standard line of reasoning in this regard. As Rabbi Yochanan said, what is the meaning of that which is written? set apart Khofshi among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. Once a person dies, he becomes Khofshi, free from the mitzvot. Okay, so this is very uh, interesting because what they're ultimately saying uh, in their, uh, in their uh, eschatological vision here is that in the end of days, the mitzvot will be nullified. They will be erased. Um, they will be erased for for the resurrection of the dead. That is to say, 
mitzvot are for the human condition of this world. But in the next era of world, again, I want to distinguish here between olam haba and techiat ametim. Olam haba means heaven, the afterlife. Techiat ametim is the resurrection of dead. That is to say, leaving olam haba to come back to this world. Those are two very different concepts. Now, okay, so it is as if the mitzvot have been erased for someone as they are elevated to the heavens. But this position goes even further, suggesting that the mitzvot are not eternal. Maimonides later rejects this view, suggesting that in the Messianic era, not only will mitzvot not be erased, but even more mitzvot will be restored, which, which could not be observed in exile. He goes even further to su suggest that belief in the eternity of the Torah and mitzvot is one of his 13 essential tenets of faith. For the Rambam, mitzvot cannot be erased. Again, for the Talmud, which he's arguing against here, they can be erased. They will be erased and nullified. Okay, now what's the most obvious Pirkei Avot that have to do with erasing? I love this text. I love this text. Ready? But indeed, erasing can be a sign of maturity. Here's what we learn in Pirkei Avot. Alicia ben Avuya, who, what, what do we call him? Anyone who's read uh, As a Driven Leaf or who knows about Alicia ben Avuya, what do we, what do we call him? Acher. Acher. He said, one who studies Torah as a child, to what can they be likened? To ink written on fresh paper. And one who studies Torah as an old person, to what can they be likened? To ink written on smudged paper. Oh, what does that mean, smudged paper? Smudged paper could be understood as paper that has been corrected through erasing. One may write with a high degree of intellectual confidence, represented in the sharp, clear mark of a fine pen. But one with more uncertainty, perhaps humility, writes with a pencil so they can correct, change, and erase. A smudged paper is not merely the ragged page of the aged, but rather the sign of a humble, introspective life. For another example here, um, and um, I'm going to, after I share this, uh, uh, AJ is going to share a remark because I learned this idea from him. For another example, let's look at the work Erased de Koenig Drawing, created, quote unquote, by the artist Robert Rauschenberg in 1953. Rauschenberg was part of a collective of artists who formed the New York avant-garde scene in the mid-20th century. Along with his contemporaries, such as Jasper Johns, Rauschenberg tried to expand what art meant via deconstruction. The starkest example of that is the work Erased, de Koenig, Drawing. The title is literal. Rauschenberg, an admirer of William de Koenig, an abstract expressionist, took a painting that de Koenig had worked on and using an eraser, stripped the art back to its bare canvas. In the final piece, Rauschenberg set out to discover whether an artwork could be produced entirely through erasure, an act focused on the removal of marks rather than their accumulation. AJ, you wanna you wanna share a word or two before I go on here about this art? Yeah, uh, can you hear me? Okay. Great. Yeah, um, what I I love when I love learning about this work back in in my graduate school days because I took a, a class on the New York avant-garde scene. And um, this, I, I love Robert Rauschenberg. I really learned a lot about him during that time. But this piece always stood out to me because it's, it's transgressive and transformative nature comes from the fact that what Robert Rauschenberg set out to do was to create something by literally erasing it. And he tells the story about how he... Um, went to Willem de Kooning's house and said, listen, I, what I have to do for this art piece that I'm thinking of is, is take something that you've created and erase it. Because what Rauschenberg had tried to do is, well, I'll just create my own etching or what my own painting and erase it. But he found that that was not sufficient enough to actually make a statement about the very nature of art itself. So he says that he take, he took a, he, drank a bottle of Jack Daniels, walked over to Willem de Kooning's house and said, listen, I need to take one of your paintings and completely erase it. And 
for his part, de Kooning um, was very reluctant. Um, and it's funny because Robert Rauschenberg would say, well, if he, if the Kooning refused to give me the art, then that is the piece itself. Um, but then the uh, Kooning finally kind of, kind of figured out, oh, this actually is an important statement about the very nature of art. So mm -hmm. he gave Rauschenberg the piece that he was working on most recently, something that it's so interesting because we'll never actually see what it was because what Rauschenberg did is he took an eraser and over a period of weeks completely erased whatever de Kooning was working on. And then along with Jasper John set that canvas in this frame, which you actually now see, uh, it says, even says on the bottom, erased de Kooning drawing. That's, they actually created that together. And, and this painting or lack of painting, however you want to call it, um, it, it's at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And um, to me, it's always been an extremely powerful work because it shows exactly what art is. It's an extremely destructive, simple piece, but in that simplicity is a really profound statement of the nature of artwork, the human mind and creativity itself. So that's what I really love about that awesome. piece. Thank you for that. Um, thank you for that. So uh, just to conclude here, indeed, when we engage in Tishuva, we are attempting to erase our mistakes of the past. But we also realize that we are an ever-evolving spiritual canvas. While they can never be erased from history, the smudges will always remain. Repair is possible, and the beauty of what is underneath becomes real. On Shabbat, we reflect on how we erase and correct in the world. In some ways, might we be erasing others, canceling others, if you will. In what way might we work to erase ideas or memories from our consciousness in order to evolve from them? But we must remember, erasing is not enough. The malacha is about erasing in order to write. If we erase, we of course must also prepare for new creativity to emerge onto our own life page. Okay, friends, let's uh, hear from you about Mochek and beyond. Shmuley. Hi. Hello. The most uh, obvious, to me, the most obvious reference is to what's currently happening when everyone is accusing everyone else of cancel culture and trying to erase what happened, you know, from, uh, I mean, everything, trying to erase history, which is what you just kind of, referenced, but I um, mean, it's very much in the news now about trying to erase what went, renaming schools, for example, removing monuments. I mean, um, uh, it's, it's, it's trying, in, in a way, it's trying to rewrite history. So um, those things happened, unfortunately, but what, you know, and these people are elevated to heroism you know, heroes, unfortunately, but it's it, the, the point is that it happened and, and it's got to be preserved that it happened and yeah. not erased. Great, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Lauren. Um, I, I think there are better ways of remembering. Uh, I mean, I would be extremely offended if there was a statue of Hitler in downtown Toronto, I would want it pulled down. But right. the, the, the better way of doing it would be to teach. Um, however, it also what you were talking about with erasing reminds me, I mean, we're at, uh, this is Shabbat Zahor, and we must blot out the name of Amalek. So, I mean, what a great tie-in, because um, we're we're of actually to to hear that Zahor at Amalek, and on Purim, we we drown out the name oh, of... Oh, good, good. So, uh, so Lauren, this is, such a, this is such a great point. So, Lauren... And, and I'll ask you and everyone else here, why, if we want to erase the name of Amalek, do we command ourselves to remember the name of Amalek, right? We say, oh, blot out the name of Amalek, erase it from history. And then we say, Parshat Zachor, Shabbat Zachor, the, the, the week of remembering. We're commanded to remember 
the mitzvah to blot out the name, making it impossible to ever forget. So what do you do with that contradiction? Anyone? So I, I see like a more, um, I don't know if mystical is a way of saying it. We must remember, we must remember the evil of Amalek. But we also, as Jews, need to make sure that that doesn't happen again to anybody. So I think erasing Amalek is erasing the deeds of Amalek and not letting it continue. And, and you know, the Gregor on Haman, of course, it's fun. But it also helps you remember from a very young age, you've got in your mind that this Haman guy was a very bad guy. I mean, I could, I could see years from now, the McGill of Trump, when we go, eh, every time Trump's name is mentioned. Um, you know, evil is evil. And um, so I think you have the two. I think we must remember, we must remember what they did. But at the same time, we, we have to blot out that kind of evil. So is anyone, thank you, Lauren, just before we go to Eileen here, is anyone familiar with the phrase uh, Yamat Shamo? Yamat Shamo. So in the, in, in the more tradition, in, in like the, in the traditional Jewish worlds, when you say the name of someone evil, after you say Yamat Shamo, you say Hitler Yamat Shamo, right? It's like, you can't just say his name. Yamat Shamo means, er may his name be erased. So uh, it, it's interesting. Mohek, erasure. You say Yamat Shamo, may his name be erased. So, you, so it's very common. Like if Hitler in the, in the, in the, in the Haredi world, for example, his name was ever said, they might not even say his name because there's considered to be a power for, uh, to saying the name. So you say, but they'd say Hitler Yamat Shamo or whatever the case is, or, um, uh, or um, so in any case, yes. So anyways, Eileen, uh, uh, you were going to comment on this idea of remembering to forget. <laughs> exactly. You can't forget something if you don't know it because it's not in your memory base. Mm. You have to understand or know and then you have to make a conscious decision and i would say it's a moral decision to erase the name of mm, yeah okay great so what we're saying here is that erasing is not merely a forgetting it's not a forgetting it is an act it's not passive it's a it's a it's an active moral act of blotting out it's which is conscious. And, and here yes it's conscious and, it, and here's the other cool thing about Jewish history. Jewish history is never about the past. It's about the present, right? We live in Jewish history, not only because the future will look at us as history, but because the, it, it, it's always alive. The idea that Amalek is alive today, that we have to blot out Amalek, right? That, of course, doesn't mean commit genocide against some population, right? As every interpreter came to th think it meant, it meant social ills. It meant um, vices in the world. And as the Hasidic world understood it to mean, it was vices in the self. When it says blot out Amalek, that is to say, where is Amalek alive in me, my Yitzhahara? I need to blot out or erase the parts of me that are vices, right? And that, that war is, you know, throughout our whole lives, throughout our whole lives. And so, so that's it. We were commanded to remember to forget because, because the remembering means that we have to be always a part of this erasure process, this part of wiping out um, this part uh, of evil in the world. Shmuley. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Cheryl and Andrea. Um, so, I mean, we talk about, when we talk about the Holocaust, we say never again, never again. Never again. And so how do we say, so we wanna blot out the fact, we never want this to happen again. But the way that we, blotted out is for people to speak about it and learn about it and education. So it's um, just, it's remembering, it's, we, we need to remember to forget. Yep. We need to remember to blot out. Yep. And, and, that, and that's what I'm saying. I hope nobody misunderstood me about cancel culture, but I mean, oh, yeah. it's yeah. like the whole thing with um, tearing down things, uh, you know, that's what museums are for. You know, we might want not want to have them. And yeah, I wouldn't want a statue of Hitler or Robert E. Lee in my hometown. But I would also, you know, that's what museums are for. Museums, you, you know, even though you're saying Jewish history is about the present, we have to have the past in order to forget, to remember to forget what happened to us. Yep. And that's what great. museums are for, so. Thank you, Cheryl. Okay, great. Andrea. Interesting discussion. So 
Um, what came up with me is I'm wondering about the difference between transformation and erasure. And, um, you know, even in the act of teshuv and forgiveness, sometimes we, we take on that responsibility to forgive, let go, but it keeps on coming up. It's kind of an ongoing constant process. Right. And another thing that I've always been interested in, um, palimpsests. So back in the day when people were writing on parchment, you couldn't really erase it. You scraped it, but the, the original um, image was always there. Like when the Christian in the monasteries, those parchments were often Jewish texts that they had scraped, but the original imprint is always there in layers. And this is you know, an idea that we could apply in many, many different places. So I'm wondering when uh, Rabbi Jose said erased, nullified, is that equated with erased? And um, when Rambam is responding that misvote can't be erased, isn't the idea that once it's there, it's there somehow and embedded, even though we may be um, attempting a transformation or a change to take that away, it's somehow layered in. And I think even in ourselves, even in pain and trauma, we're involved in a transformation of that, but somehow it, you know, it, it affected us so deeply that can it be yeah. truly erased? Are we talking, is transformation the same as erasure? This is a yeah. big question. Yeah, that's a big, that, that, that's a big, awesome question. So just a few thoughts before we open it up again. Um, firstly, you know, it's interesting that one explanation around mitzvot is um, that God is kind of adapting to learning human nature. In the beginning, there's only one mitzvah. Don't eat the fruit. And humans couldn't do that. So then they get the Sheva mitzvot b'nei Noach, the seven, right? And, and then that kind of um, continues to evolve a little bit. Um, uh, and, um, and one interpretation of what happens at Sinai, which is then the Ten Commandments, the seven to the ten, is then it expands into the biblical 613. And one interpretation there by the commentators is that um, the mitzvot are evolving based upon, upon mistakes. They do the, the golden calf and a new, new mitzvot are, are given in response to that. So God is kind of learning human nature, so to speak, and the mitzvot come to, a, uh, to respond to it. So there's, there's one mitzvah, and then there's seven of the Noahides, and then there's 10, and then, um, and then it continues to grow into the 613. And then the rabbinic tradition explodes with mitzvot. And then, then we get to this question of, well, what about in, um, in the uh, Yemei HaMashiach, in the Messianic era? And this one approach of the Kabbalists is, nope, erase it all. And this approach of Maimonides, you can never do that. You can never do that. Human, and this is a whole different view of the Messianic era, of course, around whether human nature changes. Because for Maimonides, human nature remains the same. And thus, if human nature is the same, humans need to be governed. Humans need to be regulated, right? Human nature is not itself good. It needs to be, it needs to be worked on. It needs to be regulated. Um, or left to devices, people will, will move towards selfishness. For the Hasidic thinkers, they say, no, the Messianic era, it's a whole game changer. Everything is gone. That Torah was for human condition of a different era. So then to go to Andrea's point there around transformation versus erasure, like what is redemption? What is redemption? And this is, a, this is, this is an important psychological point in addition to a theological point, because the theological question is, well, if I believe in an era of redemption, is that just as Rambam thinks, the Jews have sovereignty in Israel and there's basically peace in the world, but human nature is all still the same? Or is this the, the mystical view that the entirety of kind of human existence of the, of, of the world has been transformed? And the psychological point there is, how do we think of our own redemption? Now, I'm someone who has always struggled psychologically with disappointment. I, I have a big moment coming up and I'm disappointed with the big moment. Oh, I thought that was gonna feel perfect. Right? Anyone else relate to that? I know some people don't have that. I, I, I build up moments. This is a honeymoon. This is the, a big family moment of Thanksgiving. Oh, and it was a little disappointing. Like I thought it was going to be perfect and this happened and that happened. So I struggle with big moments and feeling disappointed. And I've, I've evolved from that. I've come over, um, over, over time to kind of built in some disappointment in my expectation 
You say, it's okay. Like, this doesn't need to be perfect. If this is okay, it's okay, right? Like it's never, you know, and so, but that's interesting. Like, how do we think about um, perfect moments? And our perfect moments, um, you know, uh, are really transformative moments where everything is clear and feels good. Um, uh, a, a certain redemption, a mystical redemption, if you will. Or are these really still, we're, it, we're completely tied into reality, even as we cultivate an experience that is attempting to be, to be something different. Now, one other point on that before we open up again is this question of transformation and erasure is not only psychological and theological, it's not only moral about how we think about teshuva, it's also about how we think about our own pain and trauma, right? And um, I'm curious, I, I suspect that few people think of their pain as having been erased. Um, it's true, there's some things that are painful we can come to laugh at. Like if I think of being bullied on the playground as a kid, I don't immediately go to a place of trauma and pain. I can kind of like, I wouldn't say I laugh at it, but it, it is a little bit erased. I can kind of look at it objectively with a lot of distance, right? And then there might be other experiences. Like I think of like my parents getting divorced or something. And I think of certain moments that kind of were a part of that. And, and I think of it and immediately that pain kind of comes back. Whoa, I feel that right away, right? And that might be that I didn't fully cycle, you know, you know deal with that therapeutically or the like, or it might simply be that I can, you, we can never erase it from consciousness, right? I can transform it. I can grow beyond it. I can learn from it, but it's always a little bit raw. It's always a little, and that's okay. Maybe that's okay, you know? And maybe once again, the expectation of perfect moments is as flawed as the expectation that past pains can be erased, right? If we think we're always gonna be disappointed that that past pain, that disappointment, that trauma is still there. Oh, what am I doing wrong? I'm not here, I'm not cured, I haven't evolved. It's still there, you know, that, that the holiday emerges and I still feel the emptiness of that trauma. I still feel the pain of that trauma. And that's okay too, to feel that. It's okay to feel that. And so the transformation, the erasure is not there, but the transformation is to say, you know what? <clears throat> I have the tools to live with that pain. I have the ability to hold that and exist with it. I don't need to erase it. I don't need to like pretend it was never there, right? I can live with it. I can live with it there. And that's what we do at Seder. We say like, wow. And that's what we do at Yom HaShoah. That's what we do at Tisha B'Av. We say the pain of the past is real. We're going to talk about it. That's what we're going to do at Shiva. We're going to talk about it. We're going to interpret it. We're going to build community around it. We can't erase it. And we're going to do the opposite of erase it. We're going to like continue to live it. We're going to live the Purim story. It's like, oh my goodness, Haman, boo. Might erase the Jews, right? But Haman, boo, we're going to talk about his name again. And we're going to keep talking about it because we can't get rid of it. We can't get rid of it because Haman is still alive today, right? And I say that very carefully because fundamentalists sometimes point to the Haman, right? Um, they point to who Haman is today. And, um, um, and that's, I want to be careful there, right? I want to be careful of saying person X or Y is Haman. Um, because some people might like saying Trump is Haman. Okay, that might feel good to some people say Trump is Haman. Other people they say Abbas or or they Hamas. Hamas is Hamas is uh, is Haman. Some people might like the first and not the second. They like the second and not the first. So the idea of saying to someone today is literally is really literally Amalek or is literally Haman. I think we want to take one step back from that formulation. Okay, okay, let me pause. If I can just say, tra so trauma therapy, actually, does it work on making you forget the event? It works on the emotional response to it yes. and blunt it. Yes. So, so that, yeah, I just thought that was an important thing to say, because I don't think you can forget a traumatic event. I don't think you can totally forget past pain of being bullied or whatever it was. Um, yeah. But you can learn to deal with it and to blunt the strong emotion that comes from it so that you can continue with your life. Yeah, great. So, Lauren, so, you know, one of the interesting things um, about PTSD for uh, soldiers 
is that they say the reason they can cope with it very well while still kind of out in the field is because they have a very tight unit who gets them, right? And even though there's been trauma, that unit is so supportive of each other um, in that they get what they're experiencing, that the PTSD kicks in back home, not only because they can lower their guard, but because they don't have that tight unit who gets them. They're kind of a part of a society where they feel alienated and alone in that trauma. But the other thing, more directly to what you said, Lauren, we've all read about the technologies of soldiers who come back from PTSD. What do you do in this technology? In the headset, you don't erase it. You relive the battlefield trauma, right? We've heard about this. You don't run away. You relive it in the most intense way so that they can remove the, the virtual reality and tell you it's okay. You go fully back into the trauma. This, this, is, this is once again, very similar, but also very different, but similar enough to make the case of, of, of those who have been uh, women who have experienced violence who go into the prison to meet their, um, meet their abuser. Um, that you go into that most intense space of encounter to feel it's is as raw as it can possibly be for some that would be way too traumatic or for others going right into that place of war right into that place of abuse in order to feel safe feel safe from that encounter uh eileen i think you were going to jump in and then carol yeah and basically i think that everything we experience we need to have as a reserve so that we are able to change our reactions or our conscious response to whatever it is. Yes, exactly. Excellent. Excellent. Just before Carol, I want to read what Rabbi Biller wrote over there. This is, this is such a great, this is like, you know, such a great um, Torah application that we've all, we're all very familiar with, but this idea of in the ark, bringing the broken Luchot along with the whole Luchot. Um, this idea that you don't just leave them behind, right? That when you go out into the world and that ark is right in front of your people, you bring those broken Luchot along with the whole ones. And those broken Luchot not only represent a crack in the name of God, but not only the tr a trauma for Klal Yisrael, but also a major moral failing, a major moral failing. Um, that they bring forth to remind themselves of the Egel Hazahav, the golden calf, and um, and the need to break those 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 luchot. Thank you, Carol. Carol, uh, I'm reminded of psychoanalysis. That's a, a form of bringing back and remembering and right. healing from that memory. Right. Yes. Thank you for that. And that idea of bringing back. Um, in, in, in dealing with that which has become subconscious and even unconscious, not going as far as we talked about last week of preconscious, but um, but the, but the subconscious and the unconscious the, in the Freudian uh, in the earlier Freudian dimensions as it emerges, particularly in childhood, particularly in childhood that um, that you know from the Freudian perspective as you as we all know that what triggers us most what we're ultimately responding to in the world is that um, unconscious level from our youth. Um, now, people can agree or disagree with that, but I think we can all agree it, it is at least partially true, at least partially true, that the work of realizing what happened to us in ways we have forgotten, and actually the opposite of erasing, almost unerasing, that's kind of an interesting word, right? Unerasing, right? What was erased from our consciousness we're almost unerasing. I'm trying to think maybe you have a better analogy or a better word for that, right? Um, to kind of um, uh, bring back to light that which was, was, uh, was immersed. I don't want to take up a lot, but um, that painting that we saw that was erased, it reminded me there's something about memory there. There's an Israeli artist who does work in sand 
and I saw a piece of his in the Tel Aviv Museum that was called The Wedding. And what he did was he had staged actors, the tables, the chuppah, everything on the sand. And the piece was the imprints that were left. It was really interesting. So it was like the memory of a wedding that had taken place with, with the, the memory into the sand. It was really, really interesting. Um, I had never seen a, a work like that. And he's, I forget his name, unfortunately, but he's known for that kind of work of memory. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren, very interesting. Thoughts on erasing, thoughts on Purim. Yeah, hi, Carol. Um, I'm upset by some things that Great. I've erased uh, ah. that I can't remember. For instance, ah. I'm trying to remember my parents' faces ah. uh, or grandparents' faces even more. Mm. Uh, I can't seem to really yes. see that. Um, I mean, I have pictures, so I know that, but I'm thinking more of sitting around the table and having dinner together. And what did they look like? How did we look? It, and, it, and it disturbs me. Yes. Because I had yeah. a great childhood, a great relationship with yeah. them. Yeah. So Carol, let's unpack that a little, if you don't mind. No. Um, what is it about that that upsets you? I, the memory that I can't remember it. Uh, I grew up with my grandparents in the same house. So they were more nurturing me than, than even my own parents, than my parents were working. So they were, they were a very big part of my life. They died five weeks apart when I was 14. So, wow, cut off like that. Yeah. So right. um, yep. uh, it, it was, uh, so I would like to just be able to revel in those old memories and I do somewhat, but I, I can't seem to see them. So, so um, it, it's, yeah, it's very profound what you're saying. And I think, you know, telling from others' reactions here, I think quite common um, that we almost long to return, long for the clarity of what it smelled like, looked like, felt like, uh, you know, the, the sound of the voices. Uh, you know, I was recently with someone who we showed a documentary of his father and he like jumped when he heard his father's voice in the film because he's like, wow, I hadn't heard that in, in two years. And, and it was both because it was a trauma associated with this father, but also a love for this father at the same time. But he was like, so like taken aback by the voice as if like he had forgotten what it sounded like and was like brought, got the goosebumps kind of like really brought back. Like it was a, a moment ago that he was in his presence. And, um, uh, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, someone was about to say something. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, uh, and this is indeed very troubling. And, and we might ask ourselves why the mind works like that, either why God would construct the psyche as such, or why through evolution, uh, memory would work as such, and um, that, that we, might, we might forget. Um, and I wonder, Carol, kind of how do you interpret, how do you kind of interpret that erasing for yourself? I find it sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then you know things come up and you want to ask something and you know, oh I should have asked my grandparents or I should have asked my father and I, I and that these are things I'm sorry I didn't ask and I and, have nobody and, and, to go to anymore. And, and what what happens with gaps, gaps in knowledge, we fill them with assumptions positively or negatively. Um, that's how we interpret Torah. We don't know what happened. Like, what did Abraham and Yitzchak talk about walking up the mountain? So we, we, we can write a novel about it, right? And like, what did my mother really believe about X, Y, or Z? You know, it's like my mother recently wanted to understand her mother's childhood, even though she was kind of discouraged to do so. So went back to her hometown and like did research and found some things that both were partially healing and partially concerning and, and was filling in those gaps in ways, you know, that, um, or people who go back to their ancestors, you know, shtetl in the old, in the old country, you know, to try to see what it looked like. It's like, there's these gaps in what we, in what happened 
Um, and we and then we fill in those gaps uh, with things we don't know. And 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 in some ways, the emptiness is unbearable. Like, what did they look like? What did they sound? What did they think about this? And so we feel the need to kind of put something in there, right? Lauren, were you about to say something? Oh, okay. No, it just brought me to tears. Yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah Andrea. Yeah. Something that's coming up for me is so in the uh, I know in the tunnel when it talks about this um, this one that um, there's more of a stricture on um, erasing than writing, and um, I mean in life destruction is part of creation, right? Sometimes we have to go back and take apart something in order to make it right. Why? is there more of a stricture on that destructive aspect since it's part of the whole process than the creative aspect? Say that last part again, I'm sorry. So why is there more stricture in the Talmud on this, um, you know, this Melakot uh, that there's um, on erasing rather than the actual writing because it's a destructive act, but it's part of our cycle of existence. Isn't it yeah. that you know we have to go back and redo a law, or yeah. I, yeah. I made a big mistake here, you know? And yeah, you know, yeah, right. Why? Why? Yeah. So, 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 like my thesis with these with these malachot are, um, none of them are inherently good or bad. They are all opportunities for reflection on parts of, on dimensions of our lives that we wouldn't naturally reflect on if we didn't if we didn't um, uh, create space for them. And thus, the Shabbat experience of, of thinking about erasing um, can move us into different modes of consciousness that we would never naturally move toward. And so to pick up on Carol's point, because it resonates for me a lot too, um, you know, one of the things they talk about in some meditation circles around healing is around visiting your spiritual homecomings. And there's different types of, of homecomings. They can be texts that we have moved us, Torah texts, books, they can be memories, they can be ideas, places we've been to, but another are people who we have loved and lost. And that is to say that when we go, that part of our spiritual practice can be going back through our spiritual homecomings to reroot us, reground us in the places that comfort us and give us, give us um, um, our deepest sense of authenticity. And, and so one thing that Carol or others such as myself as well, who long to go back to those places as I do, is to actually experiment spiritually with going back. Go back to that dinner table. Don't just think about it, right? And, I, and I'm, I'm not saying you just think about it, but I'm saying for each of us, we don't just think about it and long, but actually what would it look like to set your timer for 10 minutes and go to that table and be at that table having dinner with our parents, right? And um, uh, this is what I think ought to be the way we ought to use um, the um, Yisker experience. I think Yisker, for those who embrace the Yisker experience on the Chagim of, of sitting and mourning that the people we've lost should be a conversation. We should actually allow the Yisker experience, and if they don't do this in your shul, you might, you might suggest it to the rabbi. They may or may not embrace it. And if they don't want to do it, then you can do it alone. But it's more powerful in a communal setting. What, the way I create a Yisker experience is, I say, if, you're will, if you can handle this, I want, we're going to be totally silent in the room for the next five minutes, and we're going to return and talk to your Abba talk to your spouse who passed, talk to your, your nanny or your bubby or whoever it was and sit with them at the dinner table and update them on your life. Tell them your feelings, right? Allow them to hold your hand and to really immerse, not just in, in passive memory, but in active memory of reliving that relationship. And I think this can move people to tears. It can for me most certainly. And it can move us towards a healing of really remembering what we have erased. And sometimes I think it's erased for good. And sometimes I think we can recover more than we, we think we can. And what we're recovering is not exactly as it was. We are reconstructing in our recovery, but the recovery is relived also. And so friends, 
I give us all the bracha that we continue to have the humility to erase. We continue to be cautious with erasing and we continue to unerase that which has been erased as we move forward in the messiness of life of writing our stories and constantly rewriting and scribbling and um, erasing and rewriting to know that it's all imperfect and complicated, but that's the beauty of this life journey beyond being on this together. Let's remember to forget and forget to remember. Have a great day.